0: Chapter Two of Beverly of Graustark This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. Beverly of Graustark by George Barr McCutcheon. Chapter Two. Beverly Calhoun major george calhoun was a member of congress from one of the southern states his forefathers had represented the same commonwealth and so it was likely would his descendants if there is virtue in the fitness of things and the heredity of love while intrepid frontiersmen were opening the trails through the fertile wilds west of the alleghanies a strong branch of the calhoun family followed close in their footsteps The Major's great-grandfather saw the glories and the possibilities of the new territory. He struck boldly westward from the old revolutionary grounds, abandoning the luxuries and traditions of the Caroliners for a fresh, wild life of promise. His sons and daughters became solid stones in the foundation of a commonwealth, and his grandchildren are still at work on the structure. State and national legislatures had known the Calhouns from the beginning battlefields had tested their valor and drawing-rooms had proved their gentility major calhoun had fought with stonewall jackson and won his spurs and at the same time the heart and hand of betty haswell the staunchest confederate who ever made flags bandages and prayers for the boys in gray when the reconstruction came he went to congress and later on became prominent in the united states consular service for years holding an important European post. Congress claimed him once more in the early 90s, and there he is at this very time. Everybody in Washington's social and diplomatic circles admired the beautiful Beverly Calhoun. According to his own loving term of identification, she was the Major's youngest. The fair Southerner had seen two seasons in the nation's capital. Cupid, standing directly in front of her, had shot his darts ruthlessly and resistlessly into the passing hosts, and masculine Washington looked humbly to her for the balm that might soothe its pains. The wily god of love was fair enough to protect the girl whom he forced to be his unwilling, perhaps unconscious, ally. He held his impenetrable shield between her heart and the assaults of a whole army of suitors, high and low, great and small, It was not idle rumor that said she had declined a coronet or two, that the millions of more than one American Midas had been offered to her, and that she had dealt gently but firmly with a score of hearts which had nothing but love, ambition, and poverty to support them in the conflict. The Calhouns lived in a handsome home not far from the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Grinfall Lawry. IT SEEMED BUT NATURAL THAT THE TWO BEAUTIFUL YOUNG WOMEN SHOULD BECOME CONSTANT AND LOYAL FRIENDS. WOMEN AS LOVELY AS THEY HAVE NO REASON TO BE JEALOUS. IT IS ONLY THE WOMAN WHO DOES NOT FEEL SECURE OF HER PERSONAL CHARMS THAT CULTIVATES ENVY. AT THE HOME OF Graustark's PRINCESS, Beverly MET THE DUKES AND BARONS FROM THE FAR EAST. IT WAS IN THE WARMTH OF THE CALHOUN HOSPITALITY THAT YETIVE FORMED HER DEAREST LOVE for the American people. Miss Beverly was neither tall nor short. She was of that divine and indefinite height known as medium, slender, but perfectly molded, strong but graceful, an absolutely healthy young person whose beauty knew well how to take care of itself. Being quite heart-whole and fancy-free, she slept well, ate well, and enjoyed every minute of life. In her blood ran the warm, eager impulses of the South. Hereditary love of case and luxury displayed itself in every emotion. The perfectly normal demand upon men's admiration was as characteristic in her as it is in any daughter of the land whose women are born to expect chivalry and homage. A couple of years in a New York finishing school for young ladies had served greatly to modify Miss Calhoun's colloquial charms. Many of her delightful, way-down-south phrases and mannerisms were blighted by the cold, unromantic atmosphere of a seminary conducted by two ladies from Boston, who were too old to marry, too penurious to love, and too prim to think that other women might care to do both. There were times, however, if she were excited or enthusiastic, when pretty Beverly so far forgot her training as to break forth with a very attractive— you all, show enough, or go long now. And when the bands played Dixie, she was not afraid to stand up and wave her handkerchief. The northerner who happened to be with her on such occasions usually found himself doing likewise, before he could escape the infection. Miss Calhoun's face was one that painters coveted deep down in their artistic souls. It never knew a dull instant there was expression in every lineament, in every look. Life, genuine life, dwelt in the mobile countenance that turned the head of every man and woman who looked upon it. Her hair was dark brown and abundant. Her eyes were deep gray and looked eagerly from between long lashes of black. Her lips were red and ever willing to smile or turn plaintive as occasion required. Her brow was broad and fair, and her frown was as dangerous as a smile. As to her age, if the Major admitted somewhat indiscreetly that all his children were old enough to vote, her mother, with the reluctance born in women, confessed that she was past twenty, so a year or two either way will determine Miss Beverly's age, so far as the telling of this story is concerned. Her eldest brother, Keith Calhoun, the one with the Congressional Heritage, thought she was too young to marry, while her second brother Dan held that she soon would be too old to attract men with matrimonial intentions. Lucy, the only sister having been happily wedded for ten years, advised her not to think of marriage until she was old enough to know her own mind. Toward the close of one of the most brilliant seasons the capital had ever known, less than a fortnight before Congress was to adjourn, the wife of Grinfald Lorry received the news which spread gloomy disappointment over the entire social realm. A dozen receptions, teas, and balls were destined to lose their richest attraction, and hostesses were in despair. The princess had been called to Growstock. Beverly Calhoun was miserably unhappy. She had heard the story of Gabriel's escape and the consequent probability of a conflict with Axphain, It did not require a great stretch of imagination to convince her that the lorries were hurrying off to scenes of intrigue, strife, and bloodshed, and that not only Graustach, but its princess was in jeopardy. Miss Calhoun's most cherished hopes faded with the announcement that trouble, not pleasure, called Yetive to Edelweiss. It had been their plan that Beverly should spend the delightful summer months in Graustock, a guest at the Royal Palace. The original arrangements of the lorries were hopelessly disturbed by the late news from Count Halfont. They were obliged to leave Washington two months earlier than they intended, and they could not take Beverly Calhoun into danger-ridden Graustark. The contemplated visit to St. Petersburg and other pleasures had to be abandoned. And they were in tears, Yetive's maids were packing the trunks, and Lorry's servants were in a wild state of haste, preparing for the departure on Saturday's ship on Friday afternoon. Beverly was naturally where she could do the most good and be of the least help at the Lorry's, so confessedly she delayed the preparations, respectful maid-servants and respectful men-servants came often to the princess's boudoir to ask questions, and Beverly, just as frequently, made tearful resolutions to leave the household in peace, if such a hullabaloo could be called peace. Callers came by the dozen, but Yetive would see no one. Letters, telegrams, and telephone calls almost swamped her secretary. The footman and the butler fairly gasped under the strain of excitement. Through it all the two friends sat despondent and alone in the drear room that once had been the abode of pure delight. Grinfall Lorry was off in town closing up all matters of business that could be dispatched at once. The princess and her industrious retinue were to take the evening express for New York, and the next day would find them at sea. I know I shall cry all summer, vowed Miss Calhoun, with conviction in her eyes. It's just too awful for anything. She was lying back among the cushions of the divan, and her hat was the picture of cruel neglect. For three solid hours she had stubbornly withstood Yetive's appeals to remove her hat, insisting that she could not trust herself to stay more than a minute or two. It seems to me, Yetive, that your jailers must be very incompetent, or they wouldn't have let loose all this trouble upon you, she complained. "'Prince Gabriel is the very essence of trouble,' confessed Yateev, plaintively. "'He was born to annoy people, just like the evil prince in the fairy tales.' "'I wish we had him over here,' the American girl answered stoutly. "'He wouldn't be such a trouble, I'm sure. "'We don't let small troubles worry us very long, you know.' "'But he's dreadfully important over there, Beverly. "'That's the difficult part of it,' said yetive solemnly. "'You see... "'He is a condemned murderer.' "'Then you want to hang him or electrocute him "'or whatever it is that you do to murderers over there,' "'promptly spoke Beverly. "'But, dear, you don't understand. "'He won't permit us either to hang "'or to electrocute him, my dear. "'The situation is precisely the reverse. "'If he is correctly quoted by my uncle, "'when Uncle Kaspar sent an envoy "'to inform Dawsbergen respectfully "'that Graustock would hold it personally responsible,' If Gabriel will not surrendered, Gabriel himself replied, stock be hanged. How rude of him, especially when your uncle was so courteous about it. He must be a very disagreeable person, announced Miss Calhoun. I am sure you wouldn't like him, said the princess. His brother, who has been driven from the throne, and from the capital, in fact, is quite different. I have not seen him. "'but my ministers regard him as a splendid young man.' "'Oh, how I hope he may go back with his army "'and annihilate that old Gabriel,' cried Beverly, frowning fiercely. "'Alas,' sighed the princess, "'he hasn't an army, "'and besides he is finding it extremely difficult "'to keep from being annihilated himself. "'The army has gone over to Prince Gabriel.' Who scoffed Miss Calhoun who was thinking of the enormous armies the United States can produce at a day's notice. What good is a ridiculous little army like his, anyway? A battalion from Fort Thomas could beat it, too. Don't boast, dear, interrupted yetive with a wan smile. Dossbergen has a standing army of ten thousand excellent soldiers. With the war reserves, she has twice the available force I can produce. But your men are so brave, cried Beverly, who had heard their praises sung true god bless them but you forget that we must attack gabriel in his own territory to recapture him means a perilous expedition into the mountains of dawsbergen and i am sorely afraid oh dear i hope he'll surrender peaceably and go back to jail for life cried miss calhoun it's a good deal to expect of him dear i fancy it's much better fun kicking up a rumpus on the outside than it is kicking one's toes off against an obdurate stone wall from the inside. You can't blame him for fighting a bit. No, I suppose not, agreed the princess miserably. Grin is actually happy over the miserable affair, Beverly. He is full of enthusiasm and positively aching to be in Groustock, right in the thick of it all. To hear him talk, one would think that Prince Gabriel has no show at all. He kept me up till four o'clock this morning, telling me that Dawsbergen didn't know what kind of a snag it was going up against. I have a vague idea what he means by that. His manner did not leave much room for doubt. He also said that we would jolt Dawsbergen off the map. Sounds encouraging, at least, doesn't it? It sounds very funny for you to say those things, admitted Beverly, even though they come second-hand. You were not cut out for slang. "'Why, I'm sure they are all good English words,' remonstrated Yetive, "'Oh, dear, I wonder what they are doing in Graustark this very instant. Are they fighting, or—' "'No, they are merely talking, don't you know, dear, that there is never a fight until both sides have talked themselves out of breath. We shall have six months of talk and a week or two of fight, just as they always do nowadays.' Oh, you Americans have such a comfortable way of looking at things, cried the princess. Don't you ever see the serious side of life? My dear, the American always lets the other fellow see the serious side of life, said Beverly. You wouldn't be so optimistic if a country much bigger and more powerful than America happened to be the other fellow. It did sound frightfully boastful, didn't it? It's the way we've been brought up, I reckon. Even we Southerners who know what it is to be whipped. THE IDEA OF A GIRL LIKE ME TALKING ABOUT WAR AND TROUBLE AND ALL THAT, IT'S ABSURD, ISN'T IT? NEVERTHELESS, I WISH I COULD SEE THINGS THROUGH THOSE DEAR GRAY EYES OF YOURS. OH, HOW I'D LIKE TO HAVE YOU WITH ME THROUGH ALL THE MONTHS THAT ARE TO COME. YOU WOULD BE SUCH A HELP TO ME, SUCH A JOY. NOTHING WOULD SEEM SO HARD IF YOU WERE THERE TO MAKE ME SEE THINGS THROUGH YOUR BRAVE AMERICAN EYES." THE PRINCESS PUT HER ARMS ABOUT Beverly's NECK AND DREW HER CLOSE. "'But Mr. Lorry possesses an excellent pair of American eyes,' protested Miss Beverly, loyally and very happily. "'I know, dear, but they are a man's eyes. Somehow there is a difference, you know. I wouldn't dare cry when he was looking, but I could boo-hoo all day if you were there to comfort me.' "'He thinks I am very brave, and I'm not,' she confessed dismally. "'Oh, I'm an awful coward,' explained Beverly consolingly. "'I think you are the bravest girl in all the world,' she added. "'Don't you remember what you did at?' And then she recalled the stories that had come from Groustock, ahead of the bridal party two years before. Yet was finally obliged to place her hand on the enthusiastic visitor's lips. "'Peace!' she cried, blushing. "'You make me feel like a—what a, is it you call her? A dime-novel heroine?' "'A yellow-backed girl?' "'Never!' exclaimed Beverly severely. Visitors of importance in administration circles came at this moment and the Princess could not refuse to see them. Beverly Calhoun reluctantly departed, but not until after giving a promise to accompany the lorries to the railway station. The trunks had gone to be checked and the household was quieter than it had been in many days. There was an air of depression about the place that had its inception in the room upstairs. "'where sober-faced Hawkins served dinner "'for a not over-talkative young couple. "'It will be all right, dearest,' said Laurie, "'divining his wife's thoughts as she sat staring "'rather soberly straight ahead of her. "'Just as soon as we get to Edelweiss, "'the whole affair will look so simple "'that we can laugh at the fears of today. "'You see, we are a long way off just now.' "'I am only afraid of what may happen "'before we get there, Grin, she said simply. He leaned over and kissed her hand, smiling at the emphasis she unconsciously placed on the pronoun. Beverly Calhoun was announced just before coffee was served, and a moment later was in the room. She stopped just inside the door, clicked her little heels together, and gravely brought her hand to salute. Her eyes were sparkling, and her lips trembled with suppressed excitement. I think I can report to you in Edelweiss next month, General, she announced, with soldierly dignity. Her hearers stared at the picturesque recruit, and Hawkins so far forgot himself as to drop Mr. Lorry's lump of sugar upon the table instead of into the cup. Explain yourself, Sergeant, finally fell from Lorry's lips. The eyes of the princess were beginning to take on a rapturous glow. "'May I have a cup of coffee, please, sir? "'I've been so excited I couldn't eat a mouthful at home.' "'She gracefully slid into the chair Hawkins offered "'and broke into an ecstatic giggle "'that would have resulted in a court-martial "'had she been serving any commander but love. "'With a plenteous supply of southern idioms "'she succeeded in making them understand "'that the Major had promised to let her visit "'friends in the legation at St. Petersburg in April.' a month or so after the departure of the lorries. He wanted to know where I'd rather spend the spring, Washington or Lexington, and I told him St. Petersburg. We had a terrific discussion, and neither of us ate a speck at dinner. Mama said it would be all right for me to go to St. Petersburg if Aunt Josephine was still of a mind to go, too. You see, Auntie was scared almost out of her boots when she heard there was prospect of war in Graustark just as though a tiny little wall like that could make any difference away up in russia hundreds of thousands of miles away with a scornful wave of the hand and then i just made auntie say she'd go to st petersburg in april whole month sooner than she expected to go in the first place and-you dear dear beverly cried the rushing joyously around the table to clasp her in her arms And St. Petersburg really isn't a hundred thousand miles from Edelweiss, cried Beverly gaily. It's much less than that, said Laurie, smiling. But you surely don't expect to come to Edelweiss if we are fighting. We couldn't think of letting you do that, you know. Your mother would never. My mother wasn't afraid of a much bigger war than yours can ever hope to be, cried Beverly resentfully. You can't stop me if I choose to visit Graustark." "'Does your father know that you contemplate such a trip?' asked Laurie, returning her hand-clasp and looking doubtfully into the swimming blue eyes of his wife. "'No, he doesn't,' admitted Beverly a trifle aggressively. "'He could stop you, you know,' he suggested. Yet T was discreetly silent. "'But he won't know anything about it,' cried Beverly triumphantly. "'I could tell him, you know,' said Laurie. "'No, you couldn't do anything so mean as that,' announced Beverly. You're not that sort. End of chapter two recording by James O'Connor, Randolph, Massachusetts, November two thousand nine.